Well, that was proper warm. Thank you. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, Nate couldn't be here this morning and asked if I would stand in for him. Um, and <laughs> we, uh, my wife and I moved here about 10 months ago and have just had a blast getting to know Montana. I have had the good fortune of spending most of my life in places that people, when you say where you're from, they go, oh, wow, I lived in Mexico, I grew up in Alaska, lived in Hawaii, and uh, Montana's no exception. When friends have asked, where are you moving to? And we say, Montana. Oh. In fact, uh, this last weekend, um, we uh, put about 1,000 miles, a little over 1,000 miles on the motorcycle, which was awesome. This is a great state, and to be able to get to see some of it. Oh, and usually, so I'm getting used to Montana motorcycle culture here. And when somebody finds out I ride, one of the first questions they ask is, do you wear a helmet? And I do. I don't know about you guys that ride, but I find that it protects my ears. Um, that if I don't wear a helmet, my wife chides me so much that my ears are in pain, and so I put a helmet on. But we, um, we were able to, we went up to Helena and over to Missoula, up to Sealy Lake, uh, down to Hamilton, and did some swimming in rivers, and just, just had a blast. It's an amazing state. And I couldn't help, of course, I was thinking about Exodus, and I was thinking about this epic story, and I thought, I, you got to imagine that some of the deserts here and some of these big scapes, you know, you guys call it big sky country. I'm going to say we now that I've been here 10 months. We call it big sky country. But it's big mountain country. It's big, long, straight, flat road country. <laughs> it, it's just big country. And it's the same vision you get when you read through this Exodus story, this incredible epic, this amazing, you know, this story, it actually starts before the story starts. It's predicted in uh, Genesis. It's, uh, uh, Joseph told his brothers that, that God will not leave you here, and he told them that this was going to happen. And the Exodus story continues on and on and on through all of Scripture. It is one of the main events in that whole story. In fact, it's not just a main event in Scripture. It's, in a, it's passed on through now, several thousand years. You, I mean, who can forget Charlton Heston, right? Oh, and the waters part, and, and cartoons. I don't know if you've seen some of these, like uh, uh, Moses in the bathtub, about four years old, uh, water on each side, dry in the middle, and his mom yelling at him, Moses, quit playing in the bathtub, right? I saw, I saw one that had to have been from Montana. The uh, the waters are parted, the children of Israel are going through, Moses is leading them, and one of the Israelites says, turn to the side, fly fishing into the... <laughs> I think he was from Billings, but... Um, there are so many references, too, within Scripture. Uh, if you do... I did a quick search the other day, uh, and just, just these three words in the King James, out of Egypt, and there were over 220 hits throughout all of Scripture. It goes all the way to the end of Scripture and starts at the very beginning. That line, that out of Egypt, because God would use that. He would say, he would remind them, I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. Or they would remind each other, this was the God that brought us out of Egypt. It was woven into the fabric of their lives. And the reason why that's so significant is because God was in the process of addressing an identity crisis. That's what the grand theme of this book is all about, is these people. He doesn't have an identity crisis, but the people did. The people 
did not know who God was. And so he's been, through this book, showing them who he is, that he is a God who cares for them and is active in their life. He doesn't just talk. There's not just stuff about him, but he actually does stuff. He does stuff in their lives. He's involved in the nitty-gritty, the daily stuff, the eating and the drinking. He's involved in their safety. He's involved in their provision. And at no point are they ever out of the cover. They don't know that. And so he's also telling them who they are. They have a serious identity crisis uh, in that they don't know who they are. They see themselves after all these years that we've been talking about up to this point as slaves. And God sees them as children of the Most High. And he is in the business of restoring that identity to him. Here's the good news. He did that, but he hasn't quit. He's still in that business today. He's still in the business of restoring us, restoring our understanding of who he is and who we are in him. Today, uh, Nate gave me four, uh, four chapters. He said, pick something from these four chapters. And I got to tell you, he gave me some awesome stuff to choose from. Uh, chapter 13, uh, you have the Passover feast, this amazing uh, declaration of his love for us. And then uh, chapter 14, you have the Red Sea. Who can forget the Red Sea, right? Uh, this, this dramatic story. Uh, chapter 15, the Song of Moses, uh, a great theological treatise on worship. And then uh, at worship and thanksgiving, and then chapter 14, manna. Who doesn't like manna, right? It's food, right? We're Christians. We do potlucks. We like manna. So, um, I, but I did not end up uh, working with any of those. There's 10, 10 small verses right before the children of Israel cross the Red Sea. They've got Pharaoh and his army at their back, and they've got the Red Sea in front of them, and they are terrified. And I want to look at four things to keep in mind before you cross the Red Sea. The first thing that's absolutely critical is to understand that God is good and he knows me. If you look at Exodus 13, 17 through 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, I want to pause just a minute on let. Uh, that word is a little passive in the NIV. I've got it written on my palm pilot here in Hebrew. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for that is shalak, and it means hurling and driving. That, that Pharaoh did not just let the people go. Pharaoh hurled them. He drove them out. This man, the, the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on the planet, who had said, I will not let your people go, under the hand of God, has become an eager participant in their departure. I just want to pause there just for a sec to remind you, you may have a pharaoh in your life. You may have an employer. You may have a relative, a neighbor, somebody who is really putting the squeeze on you. But God is always the one that's in control. I love that passage, Proverbs 21, 1. It says, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand, and he turns it wherever he will like a water course. This Pharaoh's heart was never outside of the hand of God, that God knew what he would do, and he worked his purposes. Let me go on, though. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. 
the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Here's a curious thing. This passage has always been of great comfort to me in times of distress and times of trouble because it demonstrates that there was a clear path. They called it the Via Maris, the way of the sea. It was a road that went from Egypt into Canaan, where they wanted to go, and it was a very direct route. But when Pharaoh let them out, when he cast them out, they did not go on that direct route, but God took them on a circuitous route towards the south and down towards the east. And they had to have been wondering why, but it was because God knew them. God knew and he understood them, and he knew that on the Via Maurice there were many multiple uh, outposts, military outposts, and that they would absolutely face war and that they weren't ready for it. And I think of how many times in my life I'm up against something and I realize, wow, Lord, the way that you have in front of me seems very circuitous. It does not seem very efficient. And then later come to realize how effective it was. Um, let me segue here just a little bit. I, I, are you, most of us have taken our driver's test and we're familiar with uh, uh, parallel parking. Um, there's uh, angle parking. Uh, but I wonder if you've ever seen this kind of parking. I've got a picture here. Have you ever seen karate parking? The Yakima School of Karate Parking. My wife and I were in Yakima uh, a number of years back, and we were going through a parking lot, and I looked and I saw that sign. I have no idea what was on my mind, but I saw that sign and I thought, I wonder what you do in a school of karate parking. I've never heard of karate parking before, and I turned to my wife and I said, what's karate parking? And she looked at me like maybe I was slipping a bit. Um, but I, I saw all the words. I saw, what, there's five words there. I, I had all the information. I just saw it wrong. And I, you know, in my mind, I'm conjuring, you know, and maybe at the end you bow or something. But, uh, but I'm thinking karate parking. Even though I had all the information, even though I saw all the stuff, I didn't really have the whole picture. And that's what happens so many times in our lives. This is what happened to the children of Israel. They had the information. They know the quickest way there, but God's sending them on a different way. And he was going to teach them to look at it different. Um, I want to show you a video that I believe will provide some demonstration of this. This is about a young man named Leo. I remember one of the first deaf kids I found. He was about 12, 13 years old at the time. Leo was actually chained to a tree when I found him by his father. During the daytime, his father chained him up so that he would not wander off because the father loved him, but he was afraid he'd be hurt wandering around the neighborhood. We convinced the father to let him come to school. Leo graduated grade six. We didn't have a high school in those days. He got a job with us. We have a small restaurant. I began training him to be a cook and a chef. So Leo's now been with us, I guess, about 30 years. That's what it's about. It's just really neat to see these young kids grow up to have uh, opportunity and lives of their own that are fulfilling. So I, I want to show you a picture that will give, help give some more information. This is a picture, first of all, uh, this is to show off my 
awesome wife there in the middle. She's uh, teaching a panini-making class in the Philippines. And uh, one of the reasons I want to show you that picture is that uh, sometimes people get pretty uh, uptight about mission trips, that there's this fear that I have to have a, a seminary degree or I have to be a great uh, carpenter or builder. Uh, my wife is a great panini maker, and this proved to be an exceptional outreach opportunity. Uh, these people are all deaf. Um, they work uh, with, with Dennis in a, one of his three restaurants that he set up for hiring deaf people, and she's showing them how to make paninis, and they loved it. It was amazing, and it ministered to the missionary there too. Uh, but while this was going on, if you go to the next uh, page, I was standing uh, watching her, and I felt this tap on my shoulder, and I turned, and for the first time in my life, I was looking eye to eye with a Filipino man, and, and I jumped back, and, and, uh, and this is Leo, who was uh, mentioned in that video, standing on, and that's actually not a five-gallon bucket, it's taller and, narrow, taller and narrower, it's about this tall, and, uh, and you can see the smile on his face and what a practical joker he is, and Leo was, is one of 11 children. Uh, he was born deaf, and as Dennis mentioned in the video there, uh, he spent uh, much of his time chained to a tree uh, for his own protection because it, nobody, there was no way to communicate with him. I've met a number of these men and women who at that age wouldn't even have known their own name because there was no way to uh, communicate it to them. And so uh, Dennis was scouring the area and found Leo um, and with the blessing of his parents, took him in and provided him an education. Uh, afterwards, I employed him. He's been there now. That was an old video. He's been there now 34 years, something like that, working with Dennis. He met uh, a remarkable deaf uh, woman who is a seamstress. I've not seen her stuff, but by all accounts, she is very good at it. Uh, they married. Uh, they had a son uh, because of the income uh, through this education that they had they were able to send their hearing son uh, to college, and he now has a career. Leo's brothers and sisters, uh, with the exception of one of them who's a fishmonger, uh, they uh, live in deep poverty. They, the, together, nine of them, run an outdoor uh, little food stand at an outdoor market, a hibachi kind of thing, and the nine of them run that and live off of that. And because of what has happened for Leo, uh, they come to him. He's their safety net, and they come to him uh, for loans, and he's been able to bless them. Here's my question. Who in the world would have looked at a 12-year-old chained to a tree in the backyard and thought, wow, something good is going to come of this? This, of all these 11 siblings, this is the one who is going to provide for us as a family. Who would pick that? But that is what has happened. And that's one of those instances where you can see the stuff, but we don't necessarily understand the big picture, that God is doing something, that he has a plan, and that he knew Leo from the very start, and now he's using Leo to bless Leo's entire family. Um, the second thing I want to think about as you are on the edge of maybe your own personal Red Sea with an army behind you is... Uh, I don't know how to call this other than I, I put Mo took Joe, bones and stones. Moses, when he left, he grabbed the bones of Joseph 
400-year-old bones of Joseph. Let's look at uh, Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath, and he said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Exodus 13, 19. Joseph knew that God would not leave the children of Israel in Egypt as slaves. He knew that. And he said, when you leave, take my bones. But I think he also understood something. He understood the value of uh, a, a monument, if you will, uh, of something, a reminder. I think we need reminders because we forget so much. Um, if you look at Joshua 4, 5 through 7, this is another example. This is uh, uh, Joshua speaking, and, Joshua, and he said, to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. So the same thing is happening to the Jordan that happened to the Red Sea. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So here's the picture. They're crossing through the Jordan in the same way they crossed through the Red Sea. And he took one member from each of the 12 tribes and instructed them to grab a big rock. And when they got to the other side, they built those rocks into a monument that was there so that when their kids said, what, what's with that pile of rocks? They could tell them that is the pile that reminds us of how God brought us across the Jordan. The same thing is happening with the bones of Joseph. Imagine this, they took these 400-year-old bones and carted them through the desert for 40 years. When they got to the Jordan and they crossed through that Jordan, they didn't bury the bones then. They carried them around with them all through the book of Joshua. The very last verse in the book of Joshua says that they buried those bones. Those bones were a reminder to them. We forget too easily. And God has always been in the business of establishing reminders for us. The very Passover feast that happens in chapter 13, right before they get to the Red Sea, he instructed them that they would do that feast, that ceremony annually as a reminder that he brought them out of Egypt. They have these stones as a reminder. Our lives can be full of these kind of monuments. Listen, I don't know about you, I forget even the best stuff I forget so quickly. And it's not just a reminder, but it's also a proclamation. Let's look at one more verse here, uh, Joshua 2, 10 through 11. This is Rahab. Now, you maybe remember the story, but when they got to the Promised Land, Joshua sent in spies and the first big city that they went to was Jericho. And the spies snuck into Jericho, and they were secreted away by a woman named Rahab. And they are asking Rahab, why, why would you help us? And she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Those stones, those bones, those monuments, those reminders, even communion that we take, that's not just about helping us remember. That's also about proclamation. Think of this. That story had gone out long before the Israelites got there. God was already working on these people through the stories, through the proclamation of his goodness. 
this is huge in my own life. I find that I need these reminders. I've had a number of people here ask me about my Bible. This is, uh, I lived in China and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't just carry around a Bible. Um, and so I had to cover it in a brown paper bag. And I started writing on the cover and then I started adding things to it. And over the years, God has done amazing things. Here's an example. I don't know if you can see this. There's a washer. Uh, on the Bible there. Years ago, I spent about three years working in Central America. And that's a washer from a roof that um, I put on with, uh, in a village where the village had been destroyed. And there was a man there who didn't know the Lord. And I got to witness him t- over the course of three years. And he came to know the Lord. And we baptized him in a drainage ditch. And uh, he went to Bible school. And he came back. And he became a pastor. And When I see this washer, I picture his face. I think of the goodness of God, the transformation in a life. This washer to me is like one of those piles of stones, but there's so many other ways to do it. I think of um, just the stories, the stories in our families. I think of the stories in my own family. I think of uh, the different healings and the things that God has done. In my family, there wasn't money and there wasn't insurance. Sometimes that seems like a a sad state of affairs, but in another way, what a blessing. You know what we did when somebody got really sick or hurt in my family? We prayed. And I saw God do incredible things. And I have those memories. And we talk about those. Those are some of the stones and monuments. The reason I mention this to you and why I think it's so important is that if you are going into a Red Sea situation, if you have Pharaoh's army behind you and the sea in front of you, man, it's good to remember those stories. It's good to remember what God has done to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, and it's good to talk about those things. They're such an encouragement. Um, The third thing that I think is important uh, is looking at, I put, I said point, point at the pillar. Uh, In Exodus 13, 20 through 22, says, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And I've got edge highlighted there just because this is a simple thing, but maybe not. Um, you know, they left Egypt where they were cared for, and God knows that they are going into the desert. But here it says, before they entered the desert, they camped on the edge. And I, I think God allows us to be in process. You know, I grew up with these verses uh, like, uh, behold, old things are passed away, all things are made new. And there was this idea that it was this Shazam thing. Like, I I left Egypt and now I'm in the promised land. I was a slave and now I'm free. How many of you remember Nate saying the other day the difference between freed and free? They had been freed, but they weren't free yet. I think God allows us to be in process. There's some things... You know, I grew up kind of black and white, and I would think of tithing, for example, as 10%. If you've never tithed before, start at 1%. Give a dollar, but be in process. And I'm so grateful that God allows me to be in process. They're camping on the edge of the desert. They're not in Egypt, and they're not in the desert. They can see it from there but God is letting them be in process. Uh, Go ahead, Ryan. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. I would read this as a boy, and I longed for it. 
I longed, for, I wanted to follow the Lord and it seemed so tough. But, but that pillar and that cloud that they, that they had, I thought, man, if only we had it like that. If only we could just look at that. But here's something I want to suggest. Jesus was always in the business of taking externals and making them internals. Let me give you some examples. How many of you remember the Beatitudes where he said, um, you have heard it said that you shall not kill. But I say unto you, you shall not hate. You shall not be angry. I think, wow. He took that external. When you kill somebody, they're dead. That's pretty easy to clarify. But he took that external and he moved it inside. And he said, I don't even want you to be angry. I don't even want you to, to hate. Uh, uh, he also said, um, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look on a, another lustfully, you've committed adultery adultery. He took that external, that, that very quantifiable act, and he moved it inside. And he said, don't, don't, don't do that. And he has always been doing that. And one of the things as a boy, I remember praying about this and, and saying, man, I wish I had a pillar to follow. I wish I had a pillar in front of me. And he said, you do, you do. That when you take me into your life, when you accept me as your Lord and Savior, my spirit comes into you. You have my spirit in you, and my spirit will lead and guide you. That pillar of fire and that cloud have moved inside of me to guide and lead me. Um, if you look at John 16, 13, he just gives us a, a, a biblical representation of this. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, this is Jesus talking. Jesus who is with his disciples, he's physically with them. He's external. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak in his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will guide you in all truth. And he sent that spirit, the external Jesus who is with them, sent that spirit to be inside with them, to be that pillar in that cloud. Um, here's a question I would ask is if, imagine this, uh, the, the fire, this pillar of fire, there, every one of those Israelites had seen fire. Think about all of them. Nate's told us that there were 750 to maybe even a million and a half of them. All these campfires there. Do you think any one of them had trouble distinguishing from a campfire and the pillar of God? Do you think any of them were trying to follow a campfire through the wilderness? Or do you think, what about the clouds in the sky? Do you think they were like wandering? Oh, that, maybe it's that cloud. That one kind of looks like an elephant. They're good leaders. Following that? No. No, they all knew which was the cloud and which was a pillar. One of the things that I've been thinking about after a conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago is if that pillar and cloud are in me, if the Spirit of God is in me, would it stand to reason that people should be able to see that? Would I look different? If that pillar and cloud are in you, is it reasonable to assume that people should be able to follow you as you follow the Spirit of God? Uh, Paul would suggest that in 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. He says, follow me. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That, that there should be something different, cogn cognitively different. We should be able to recognize, wow, the Spirit of God resides in them. Um, the fourth thing that I would uh, look at here before 
before we cross the Red Sea is that this idea that none should perish. Um, the heart of God. I want to talk about this for just a minute. Let's look at the Exodus 14, 1 through 4. And this is just, this is the last bit before they're going to cross the Red Sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And the reason I had confusion highlighted there is, you know, when we're following the Lord, when we're following that pillar inside of us, the Spirit of God, sometimes it looks confusing to the world. I mean, really, who, who uh, gives up their two-week vacation to go do VBS in Uganda, right? Only crazy people do that. But sometimes God will call you to that, and it'll be the most amazing thing in your life. He says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Can we leave the scripture up here for a little bit? I want to just look at this idea that, that God's heart is that none should perish. Um, we don't need to, if you're writing notes, um, 2 Peter 3.19 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason why I had hardened there is, um, as a boy, I would read that, not just as a boy, as an adult. Through my life, I've read that, and I just, I've struggled with that. Lord, did you harden his heart? Did how, what's going on here? And how do you reconcile that with First Peter where he says he would that none should perish? And I've thought about this a bit, and I have an idea. You know, when uh, Brenda and I moved here, it came from a cow town, and uh, uh, I had pretty hard hands. I've been here 10 months at a desk job, and now I have the hands of a third-grade schoolgirl. And if, uh, if you told me to go out and sweep the parking lot out there, I, I could do that. I'd probably get a bunch of it done. It's a pretty big parking lot. But I'm guessing that within a couple hours, I'm going to start to get some welts on my hands. A couple more hours, they're going to pop and bleed, and I'm going to have blisters. And if you told me I had to do it the next day and the next and the next, eventually what's going to happen is that they're going to get hard because as I'm pushing this broom, the broom is pretty steady. The broom is what it is. But if my hands don't work directly in unison with that broom, if I'm slipping and if I'm moving, they're going to move and they're going to rub against that broom. And eventually I'm going to get blisters and I'm going to get calluses. My hands are going to get hard. I think the same thing happens in our hearts. When I don't move with the Spirit, when I don't follow the Spirit's leading in my heart, I'm not moving in unison and there's some friction there. And those friction leads to some pain and blisters. And if I ignore those and just keep on doing as I've been doing, that can lead to hardness. That can lead to a hardness in my heart that can cause some real grief and sadness, not only in my life, but in the lives of those around me. The third thing that I want to look at in this verse is that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God's heart has always been for all people, and it is demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites were his chosen people, but he chose them to be a witness of his desire to be in fellowship with all people. 
And it didn't matter if they were Egyptians. It didn't matter what their race was. Do you remember that gal that we were talking about, Rahab the harlot in Jericho, harboring the slaves? She became part of the nation of Israel. She was saved through the choices that she made. And she became part of the nation of Israel. She was as outside of the nation of Israel as any Egyptian. He, she was as outside as Pharaoh was. But she chose to come inside. She chose to become a follower of the Most High God. And Scripture goes on to tell us that she went from way outside to way inside. She's actually in the lineage of Christ. That she who was on the outside came to be on the inside. And what I want to highlight is that that's God's heart, not just for Egyptians, not just for uh, this woman, not just for the Israelites, but for all of us. That has always been his heart, to be in fellowship. This is the whole epic of Exodus, is moving a people from slavery into freedom. And it's the whole epic of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is moving people like me from slavery into freedom. I've been slave to some really unholy things. But God has redeemed me, and it's in the process of doing so more and more. So as we look at these passages, my hope is that you will hear God's heart for all people, and that if you are up against a Red Sea now with an army behind you, that you will know that there is a way. I, Chris Smith has written a song that I think is very applicable to this. Um, Chris, would you share with us?